0: Last night, just a quick... Four-minute review of where we came last night. Here's what we decided. We we and we affirmed. We affirmed that I love the Bible. I love the Bible so much. I've given my life to studying it, writing about it, preaching about it, and traveling all over the world at great sacrifice to myself. I I really really love it. I believe I believe that when we engage Scripture the right way, it is a it has a potential for life change unlike anything else. I believe that with all my heart. I love it with all my heart. Which, Which is why. Which is why I don't like it when, when, when people demean it. I don't like it when people demean the Bible or make it ugly or make it make it unpalatable. Make it untenable, make it ir- or, or irrelevant. I don't like that either. Right? And so and so there's a way we could do that. We we can speak if we want to ruin the Bible, we can speak of the Bible statically. It's all you gotta to do to ruin the Bible. Use words like, God wrote it. Right? Well no he didn't. Because if God wrote it and God doesn't change, then how do you explain some of the stuff in there that we don't bother to keep anymore? Things like, like none of us would support the death penalty for people not taking Saturday off, right? None of us would force our sister-in-laws to marry our brother-in-laws if somebody, if somebody dies. No one would do that. No, No one would refuse a Sidonite who wanted a meal at your table, Right. If if the Bible is static, then if someone in here was shown to have Amalekite blood, we should put you to death right now. Right. So so we don't want to speak of the Bible in those terms. We want to speak of, those, of the Bible in different terms. So we so we, we talked about the Bible being inspired, not dictated, inspired, not not written by God and not dictated by God. But somebody wrote something that needed life, and God gave it life by breathing on it. And we talked about that. We we also talked about the Bible being complex. That, that uh, 1,500 years of putting, of compiling, the Bible's not one book, it's a library book, 66 books, 40 different people, over 1,500 years in different genres. It, it, what the original author intended to write to the original author, to the original audience is incredibly important to interpreting it. And so we talked about it being inspired and we talked about it being incredibly complex. We talked about having to honor that to do it. And I purposely last night left a whole heap of cliffhangers. Did y'all notice? Did you notice that? Oh, okay. uh, You did. Okay, great. Nobody looked bored when I got done. And so tonight I want to sort of bring, not closure, because closure when it comes to scripture would be awful. I want you to keep journeying, keep going. I I actually want you to leave here tonight with more questions than you came in here with, because that means you'll journey it out. I want to do that. So so let's remind ourselves, why is the Bible under attack? If you could bring that slide up for me. Why is the Bible under attack? Three reasons. One, static appropriation. Static appropriation. Number two, genre confusion. And number three, lack of appreciation or consideration of history or historical arc. Now I'm going to belabor this for a good one minute. And I have a reason for it. Static appropriation, genre confusion, lack of understanding of history. Static appropriation, genre confusion, lack of understanding of history. You can't speak of the Bible in static terms, nor can you genre confuse. If the original author wrote a history book, you can't interpret it like a poetry book. And if the original author wrote a poetry book, you can't interpret it like a history book. If the original author was using metaphor, you can't devalue it by trying to interpret it literally. If the original author was telling a parable, you can't try to figure out where it literally happened. You can't do that. It's genre confusion, static appropriation, genre confusion, lack of appreciation or consideration or understanding of historical art. Now, if those are the problems which are static appropriation, genre confusion... Lack of consideration of historical arc. If those three things are the problem with our static appropriation, genre confusion, lack of understanding of historical arc. If those three things are the problem, what are the solutions? And so, so I want to, I want to give us three solutions to this and then look at some specifics. One, the Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The Bible is not, my goal with teaching these two nights is I want you to fall in love with your Bible again. I want you to re-engage it. I want you to look at it from a fresh perspective. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of God that leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And at each stage, God gave each part life by breathing on it. Abraham's movement from child sacrifice to animal sacrifice. Breathe. Moses' movement from infinite sacrifice to one. Breathe. Micah's movement from from one sacrifice to no longer needing sacrifices. Breathe. Jesus' movement from one sacrifice per family per year to one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. Breathe. These things breathe life. But you don't see one static revelation of God. And the, the thing is, if you think about your life, your life is like that too. There's been many words from God for you over the course of your life to move you from here to here to here to here to here. And they can be different but still have the same life. So the Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving narrative that we have to consider its place in the whole when we interpret it. That's number one. Number two, the Bible's written by 40 different people over approximately a thousand years in different eras and genres. What the original author intended to communicate. To the original audience should be heavily considered when interpreting it. That's obvious. Number three, we have to always consider historical arc before we draw conclusions about the scripture in question. Normally when you see something in scripture and you're going what normally there's some story underneath that story that makes that story make more sense or there's an explanation behind it or in front of it that gives it context to make it make more sense. Let me just give you a few examples of this next slide. So you got Deuteronomy 21, right? Which we, which we that was the cliffhanger last night in case you forgot. I'm gonna to get to that in a second. And then of course, you've got the unknown God. You know that part in Acts where Paul shows up and he says, hey, I see a whole lot of idols and so many I can't even name, but I see one and you haven't named it yet. Let's just call that Jesus and be done with it. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Paul allowed to do that? And would you have Paul on your missions committee if that was his mission strategy? Hey, just go into a place and call one of their gods Jesus and just be done with it. Is that okay? Or does History tells us a different story about what makes that make more sense. Or what about Bethesda, right? Where that's a weird story, where evidently God tells an angel to stir the water of a certain pool and then only heals one person and sends everybody else home sick. He successfully creates a race amongst afflicted people because nothing gets God's heart beating like a bunch of crippled people trying to move fast. That'll just be awesome, right? That'll just be a great story, huh? Hey, angel, come here, move that water. Only one person though, heal him. Everybody else go home sick. This is going to be amazing. You've never seen anything like a bunch of handicapped people trying to move fast. This is gonna be hilarious. This makes God look insane unless you know the history underneath it, which helps explain that story. Or what about dirty sponges? And why are they lifting dirty sponges to Jesus's face? Why are they giving him something to drink from a sponge when they're trying to kill him? Why do that? And what about whitewashed tombs? And what about the gates of hell? And where was Jesus standing when he said the gates of hell and how would they have understand it? And what about stones crying out? What was going on there? And if we quit praising at 3 a.m., will the streets start singing? Whoa? No, what is going on there? There's got to be some other story. Under- underneath that story to make that story make more sense. And what about writing in the dirt? He's trying to save some woman's life and his strategy is to draw in the dirt. What is he doing there? And why would you ever chop off a man's ear? And was it legal to chop off a man's ear? And how did Peter chop off the man's ear and nobody arrested him even though he did it in front front of a bunch of witnesses? Was it legal to chop off a man's ear in the first century? Why did he do it? And what was going on? And what were the police doing? The whole Roman guard was there and they just went, these crazy Jews, what's going on? There, That's kind of nuts. And what about let the dead bury the dead? So this guy comes along and he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes, yeah, follow me. And he goes, no, no, no. I need to go bury my dad first. And Jesus' insensitive response was, let the dead bury the dead. Is Jesus allowed to do that? What's going on? And how insensitive can you be? Does Jesus not allow you to attend your father's funeral? Or is there a better explanation than that based on history? And what about sounding the trumpets? And why did the blind man start stripping? That's a weird story. Like, have you ever... Have you ever had somebody just a little too excited to see you? What was going on there? Right, right. And why 30 pieces of silver? Why not just a big bag of silver? Or why not a small bag of silver? Or why not a bunch of silver? Why specifically 30 pieces of silver? And what is that author trying to say? The history will tell us that. And what about folded face cloths and tombs? Why does it say the grave clothes were piled down, but the face cloth cloth was folded neatly to the side? What's going on there? And what about Ananias and Sapphira? And why are people evidently dying in the new testament based on lying and what helps us understand that a bit better when we understand the story underneath that story and what about the blessed Sidonite woman and why was that such a big deal and why did Jesus almost get thrown off a cliff for blessing a woman who happens to be of Sidonite heritage what's going on there and what about the creation account and how do we make how, how do we make sense of the fact that the creation account in Genesis 1 appears in the Enuma Lish, the Epic of Athrasis and the Epic of Gilgamesh and what does that tell us about what Moses was trying to say about how great Jehovah is over the Babylonian God's Marduk? And how does that enhance that story and make it even better? And why does the gospel, why do the gospels tell contradictory stories? Like in one place in Matthew, it says, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then after that, he went in and turned the tables over and Mark, it says he turned the tables over. And then after that went out and cursed the fig tree. If God wrote those things, he got very confused on his chronology. What's going on there. And, and, and why do the books of Samuel Kings and Chronicles differ so much when speaking of the same exact event why does that happen Histor- historical arc will tell us that and why all the contradictory commands do, do we confront a fool or do we be quiet in the face of a fool what do you do this, this, see, see this would be genre confusion when we interpret a proverb as if it's a promise you can't do that a proverb is not a promise a proverb is a wisdom statement a wisdom statement is an observation about how the world generally works for instance proverbs says if you answer your enemy kindly his anger will turn from you is that true in general, but Jesus answered his enemies kindly. And last time I checked, they killed him. A proverb is a proverb, not a promise. You can't genre confuse and see, see, the Bible doesn't really work. It doesn't work that way. And can God not just make up his mind? And what about turn the other cheek? And does that really work? And would Jesus really expect us to do that, to do that? And how does that even look? And what about go the extra mile? And what about heaven? Like when Jesus said heaven in the first century, what did they picture? And when Jesus said hell, What did they picture then? And what about rubbish dumps? And what about white robes and gold crowns? I remember when I was seven years old, my Sunday school teacher was like, hey, boys and girls, hey, boys and girls, let me tell you some good news. One day you're gonna die and then you're gonna get to go to heaven. But that's the good part, right? The good part's heaven. And here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna all get white robes and gold crowns and you're gonna get to go to church all day. And I remember being seven going, white robes, gold crowns, and all day church. Oh no, where is hell, right? (laughs) Like, how horrendous is that? Like, my God, what's going on there? And what about rending the garments? And what about casting aside garments? What about binding and loosing? What's he talking about? And what about let the dead bury the dead? That's so bad, I put it in there twice. And what about... What about good eyes and bad eyes? And what was Jesus getting at when he said that? And what about yokes? And what about easy yokes? And what about shaking the dust off your feet? And how can a guy that tells you to love everybody and forgive everybody in the same breath say shake the dust off your feet unless shaking the dust off your feet is somehow a blessing? How does that work? And then what about clean and unclean? And what about tassels on garments? And what did that mean? And why was God so into fashion? And what's happening around that? And perhaps most importantly, next slide, Next one. What did Moses see when he saw God's backside? (laughs) I want to know that. Because think about it. It says that God hid Moses in the crevice of the rock with his hand. Well, it's the hand of God. Like, how big is God's hand? It'd be really flipping big. You know, it's the hand of God. Right? But then the next line says, and then he passed by and showed him his backside. Well, if God's hand is big, (laughs) God's butt would be enormous. What was going on there? What's happening? A good study of history will tell you. Static appropriation, genre confusion. Lack of understanding of historical arc. Which leads me to this. Next slide. Whores and horses? How'd that, how did whores and horses make it into the Bible? How'd that make the cut? What about that phrase, did God go, oh yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's from the book of Revelation. It says, and I saw a great horse coming down from the sky on a horse descending to the city of seven hills. Now, if you read that literally, that's quite frankly insane. Because quite frankly, there's nothing scarier than a whore on a horse. You're thinking, what is that about? After last night, only about 17 of you said, Shane, what's the, come here, come here, come here, quickly. quickly. I said, just relax, we'll talk about it tomorrow. See, to understand... Why John is talking about whores riding horses down to the city of Seven Hills. We got to understand the first century reign of Domitian. As a matter of fact, you can't read anything in the book of Revelation and understand it without understanding the first century reign of Domitian. From 78 AD to 92 AD. Domitian was a particular narcissist. He said he was God in flesh. That was nothing uncommon. He, he made everybody call him Lord and savior. He instituted Olympic style games all over the Roman empire to his honor. He was such a narcissist. Here's what he did. He went to a place in Ephesus called the Agora, the marketplace. It's where we get the word agoraphobia from. It was the main center of mercantilism in the Roman empire. Why? Because it was on the main trade route, whether you were from the East or from the West, you could come together at, at the Agora in Ephesus and buy and sell and trade. So people from China and India would come and people from Spain and France would come and they would buy and sell and trade and then they would go back to their homeland and this is how this works. So, the, 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 um, the consultants for Domitian said, hey man, you've got to get smart about this. This is the main epicenter of mercantilism. You ought to charge a fee, an extra tax in the Agora. And he's like, no, no, no. This is how big of a narcissist is. He's No no, 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 no. If I do that, I'll be unpopular because I'll be taxing the people more. But here's what I can do. I can make people give an offering to me because I am the son of God. I should be worshiped and they should pay for the divine privilege of having me be their leader. So what we'll do is this. We'll, we'll build four Ecclesias churches around the Agora in Ephesus. And what I'll do is I'll post my 10 mightiest deeds on force on it's my 10 mightiest deeds on two stone tablets in those Ecclesias so that we can, you know, you, you know, pay homage to me and here will be the rule before you can buy and sell in the agora you 've got to go in there and give an offering to Domitian just for the divine privilege of having the Son of God be your leader and before you can buy and sell in that agora you 've got to give your offering. The problem is is how do you police that so he employed witnesses called acolytes and their job was to stand there and watch people give their offering. And then they had to mark the people who gave their offering before they could go buy and sell in the Agora. And they would do so by giving them a mark in their forehand or their forehead. And this would tell the managers in the Agora, they have passed their test and they can now buy and sell. Well, the Jews hated this, right? So here's what happened. Domitian to prove he was God. He, there was a huge open aired pantheon of the gods outside of the Agora. What he did is he put a ceiling on top of the pantheon of the gods and then on top of that ceiling, he put a 28 foot statue of himself and he said see, not only am I the king of kings, but I am also the lord of lords and if I wasn't the god almighty, those gods would have stopped me. But since they didn't stop me, I king of kings and lord of lords. And everybody bought it except for one band in a small part of the Roman Empire called the Jews. So the Jews made up a nickname for, uh, for, for Domitian. And they called him the beast who comes from land and sea. The reason is, is because no matter whether you were coming by land or coming by sea, the first thing you would see when coming into Ephesus was the 28-foot statue of the beast. So... From 78 AD to 92 AD, before you could buy and sell in the central marketplace, you first had to take the mark of the, yes. Oh, by the way, there's more. Check this out. (laughs) Domitian looked around the empire and he said, hey, every other god has an Olympic game. So I'm going to institute an Olympic game for me. And he creatively called it the Domitian Games. And here's what he did. Tell me where you've heard this before. Check this out. He divided the Roman Empire into 12 districts. Mm -hmm -hmm. And each of the 12 districts had to give up two delegates to, to give up to fight in the Domitian games. By the way, the only district absolved from participation was the capital city, where every person who lived in the capital city was on something called the dole, which provided a living wage for them just for being Roman citizens. 24 teenagers from around the Roman Empire would come to the Roman Colosseum for the entertainment of the capital city. Is this sounding familiar at all? Everybody would pile in to the Roman Colosseum. And Domitian wanted to create the greatest choir ever created to sing his praises. So he handed every person a white robe and a gold crown. And when it was full, Domitian would stand in front of the people and do this. And then they would sing a hymn of praise to Domitian. It goes like this. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God. For you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. At the end of the song, they would cast down their crowns at his feet. Think about your Roman Empire movies. The Caesars, there going, mm, they're throwing things down. They would cast their golden crowns at his feet. Oh, by the way, Domitian employed 24 people in three shifts a day to follow him around and tell him how awesome he was. That is 24 elders. John is writing in Revelation chapter 4 and he says, and I saw the 4 and 20 elders sitting around the throne of God and we were wearing white robes and gold crowns and we were casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea, but we were singing a new song. In other words, Domitian doesn't get the last word here. Jesus does. Hang in there. Hang in there, man. Hang in there. Oh, hey, check this out, by the way, right? Um, The last 20 people died, which would leave how many? Four, final four. The final event of the Domitian Games was a four-horse horse race of four horses of a different color. Think Ben-Hur. And it was a four-horse chariot race where everybody died, leading, leaving one lone survivor, the winner of the Domitian Games. And the winner of the Domitian Games was given honorary citizenship in the Roman Empire. This would leave 23 bodies laying on the ground of the Roman Colosseum. The last scene of the Domitian Games was two characters, one called Death and one called Hades, would come out in masks and on horses, and they would clean up the dead bodies. And I saw Death and Hades coming down on a horse. This went on from 78 AD to 92 AD. In 93 AD, a young lady from district 12 took on the capital city with a bow and arrow and ended it. <laughs> right? Right. I, I made that last one up. Okay. So, uh, but, but you know, you know, uh, huh, you know, you know. So if I'm Domitian and I say, I am God in flesh The question would be, which God's spirit has filled you? Which spirit of God has filled you? And here's the answer. They believe that the male divine energy that filled Domitian was the God Jupiter. They believe the female divine energy that filled Domitian was the goddess, wait for this, Roma, Roma. Does that sound familiar, right? Rome was named after a Roman general named Romulus. But the God underneath, the power, the spirit underneath that, they believed was the spirit of the goddess Roma. Now, the goddess Roma was the goddess of virtue and justice So, how do you get word Around the empire That the goddess Roma is actually in charge You would do it with coins There was no electricity, no printing press Town criers are highly unreliable The government messages were always on coins If you want to do great history studies Always look at the coins always, This is what the government was trying to say And so they sent around coinage With Domitian's head on the front And the tail side of it The front side of it said Domitian God Saves On the tail side of it was the goddess Roma dressed virtuously, holding the scales of justice, riding a horse, descending to the city of seven hills. So the back of the coin had seven hills. Rome was called the city of seven hills. The back of the coin had seven hills and the goddess Roma dressed virtuously, holding the scales of justice. John is writing to the oppressed churches of Asia Minor who lived in this horrendous oppression of the Domitian games and economic oppression and the mark of the beast and all of this stuff. And he's writing them and he says, oh, by the way, I saw a great whore descending on a horse to the city of seven hills. In other words, the goddess that you call the goddess of virtue, not only is she not virtuous, she's the opposite of that. She's a whore. This is a guy destined to the island of Patmos by Domitian writing a letter, knowing they were going to read it going up yours Domitian. You're not going to get the last word here. The spirit of the goddess filling you, she's not virtuous, bro. She's a whore. That is a whole lot more profound and a better way to read it and a more applicable way to read it than to wonder, when are we going to look up and see this literally? This was written as symbolic oppression, resistance literature, and that makes it awesome. Which leads me to this. Next slide. What's the deal with Job? <laughs> so, I was doing a Q&A and um, huge, had to be 1500 people there, humongous, microphones on either side. The one in Auckland I told you about last night was smaller, this was enormous. This lady came up, when I say lady I mean 20 year old girl. She came up and she said, Pastor Shane, um, thank you for coming. You've really helped me so far. I'm wondering if you could help me further. I said I'll try. She said, "I'm not a Christian." I said, "It's okay. The people I like the most aren't yet Christians." (laughs) I was just trying to set her at ease. Would you Would you agree with me that when you're in a room full of largely Christian, to say that from from the stage is, is brave? right? She, I can't tell you how kind, authentic, well thought out she was. I can't tell you how teachable she was. She was a refreshment to my soul. Here's the thing. I had studied all the potential questions from Google and she dropped the one bomb I wasn't exactly ready for, right? This one wasn't in Google. She said, I'm not a Christian. I said, okay. She said, my parents both were atheists. I was raised in an atheist home. She said, but I'm, I want to, I want to be clear. I'm not an atheist either." She said, in my journey, I've come to the conclusion it's too hard to believe it all happens by chance. It's very difficult. It's too many variables holding the world in its place just for us to live, for me to think nothing is outside of it. I said, right, good for you. And would you, would you agree with me that someone who was raised an atheist who is now considering maybe there's a God, that's a step in the right. That's someone whose shoulders are moving the right way. Right? And we want them to keep moving. We don't want to be mean to those people. We want to be kind and compassionate and, and address their question and wrestling and actually honor that. Right? So she said, she said, I'm not a Christian. I'm not an atheist. I'm, I'm searching. She said, but I have a problem with Christianity. I'm wondering if you can help me. I said, I'll try to help you. I will. I will. I'll, I'll do my best. She said, okay, I've done my homework. She said, I count roughly 80, 80 promises in the old Testament that God will protect us from our enemies i said great amen what's exactly the problem she said right roughly 80 promises that god will protect us from our enemies but then there's an entire book dedicated to god proving in writing that not only does he not protect us from our enemies he lets satan kill a man's entire family so here's my question is god a liar Or is he allowed to lie? Or is he random? And is he allowed to be random? And if he's random, why would you trust someone who's allowed to be random? Because someone being random and untrustworthy is literally the definition of not trustworthy. Can you help me please understand why you've put your trust in a God that admitted in writing he's not trustworthy? Good question or bad question? Really good question. We better have an answer for that. Better. Is she right? Yeah. Is there roughly 80 promises that God will protect us from enemies? I don't know if there's 80, but there's enough. And then is there an entire book where God and Satan make a bet on somebody's life? And God says, yeah, 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 yeah. Just go, uh, go destroy whatever part of him you want, except don't kill him. And we'll see. Is that protecting us from our enemies? No. Did God promise to protect us from our enemies? Yes. Is there a 47 or so chapter book dedicated to a story about God not protecting us? Yes. Is her story good? Yes. Is her question good? Yes. Here's the thing. Her question has a fallacy to it. So I said to her, thank you so much for asking that. And thank you so much for the tone in which you asked it in. You're very curious and you're a learner. And I love that about you. And you can feel totally at ease journeying with us for however long you want. So I wanted to set her at ease, right? I said, I want to make sure we're on the right page. Are you, are you addressing the book of Job? She said, that's the one. I said, okay. Now, what's the problem with her, her question has one fallacy to it. What's the problem? Static appropriation, genre confusion, or lack of understanding of historical art. Of those three, what's the problem? And it's an obvious one. It's genre confusion, Right? So I just asked her this, I asked her one question, is Job a history book? She said, I don't know, I haven't considered that. I said, that's okay, let's consider it now, you're really smart. In the Old Testament, was there a history section? She said, yes. I said, what books are in the history section? And she was stammering then, I could tell she did her research, I said, I'll start you off. Let's just do it together. Joshua. Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those are the history books. She goes, Yes. I said, Is Job in the history section? She said, No. I said, What section is Job in? She said, The poetry section. I said, Right. What's that tell you? She put both her hands on her head and she went, It's a poem. I said, yes, Job is not history. Job is a poem. How do we know it's a poem? Because it's in the poetry section. (laughs) Like to interpret Job literally is as stupid as interpreting the song of Solomon literally. Like was her nose actually like a tower? (laughs) Shane, it says her legs were cedar trees. Can't be true. Was her nose actually like a tower? No. Were her legs actually like cedar trees? No. Were her breasts really as big as the hills of Bashan? No. It's a poem. You can't interpret Job literally. It's a poem. Here's the historical arc of Job. There was an actual historical man named Job. He lives in Jewish lore, Christian lore, Muslim lore, Middle Eastern lore. We don't know much about him. We just know he had a lot and he lost everything. He had a lot, and he lost everything, and then eventually his life got better. We also know the book of Job, the poem, was written by slaves in Babylon. Now, if you're a Jewish person, and you were taken into slavery in Babylon, what have you lost? Everything. Who might you identify with? Job. So they wrote this play. Job is more like a play. They wrote this play based on, think of a movie based on true events. They wrote this play based on true events in an effort to explain poetically why suffering happens. I mean, if you want proof it's a poem, one, it's in the poetry section. Two, Job starts off as a council meeting of the gods, where the Satan and God make a bet. Does that sound like historical narrative to you? No, it sounds like a poem, which is why they put it in the poetry section, right? And the conclusion of this incredibly long poem is this. Any effort to intellectualize suffering devalues it. Suffering is not something to be figured out. Something is something that must be embraced and gone through. But in the suffering, if we can profoundly trust God, at some point, all things will be restored. And that is moving. She said, thank you. Which leads me to this one. Next slide. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands. And you take captives. And you see amongst the captives a beautiful woman. You're attracted to her. You take her as your wife. Bring her to your home. Have her shave her head. Trim her nails. Put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured after she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month because you killed them, then you may go to her and be your husband. She shall be your wife. But if you're not pleased with her, just let her go wherever she wishes. You just must never sell her, as treat her as a slave, since you've already dishonored her. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> Preach it, preacher. We live by the whole Bible here. Shave those heads. Clip those nails. Make young women marry men they don't love. Because our God is love. The young lady in Auckland I told you about last night. She said, Shane, please help me. I love Jesus. But I am certain that I'd never want to have dinner or spend eternity with a God that ever thought it was okay to treat women that way. Please help me. Here's what I knew in that moment. This young lady in front of a crowd of people is asking me about a passage of scripture that if you're honest, when you read it on the surface, can we, can we just, can we just be honest for a second? If you read that just as it is, you have to be intellectually disingenuous to go, well, isn't God good, right? And she, and she's asking such a good question. And here was the problem, Right. I knew, this is a long time ago now, but I knew that her faith was weighing in the balance. And I knew that there was a lot of people in that room. They all went like this. And I didn't tell them to wait till tomorrow. Because <laughs> I couldn't. I felt so bad for her. But the answer to that's so easy. The three problems with this static appropriation, genre confusion, Lack of understanding of historical arc. The problem here are the number one and number three is static appropriation and genre confusion. Let let me, let me tell you what I mean, okay? Only the women in this room, this was my answer, by the way. Only the women in this room can answer this question. If the people in Canberra tomorrow said, we're getting back to the Bible... And they made Deuteronomy 21 the law of Australia starting tomorrow. Would life be better or worse for women than today? Yeah, don't think real hard about that. If they made that the law in Australia tomorrow, would your life be better or worse if you're a woman? So sometimes getting back to the Bible is the wrong direction. So when we say, oh, we just got to get back to the Bible. I know what you mean. What you mean is we need to get back to the risen Christ. And I agree with you. But when you say we need to get back to the Bible, it includes that. So please be more specific. Okay? See, but you can't read it that way. The Bible doesn't exist in a vacuum like God dropped it out of heaven like a chicken laying an egg. (laughs) I don't know where that just came from. doesn't work that way the reason it's worse for women if we went backwards is because it is backwards here's how you read that passage the the worst questions are why would god write that that's a bad question why because god didn't write it who wrote that moses wrote that the question isn't why did god write it and the worst question isn't why is god for that which is what she was asking why would god be for that Why would God be for that? That's a bad question. God didn't write that. And can we all agree together based on the full revelation of God that God's not for that either? Right? We're all in unison with that. That based on the revelation of the risen Christ, the final word of God, that that's probably not the best. But that's not how you read it. It wasn't that God wrote it and it wasn't that God was for it. But God inspired it. Which leads to this question. Why would God inspire something that sounds that insane? Here's why. If Australia went back to that law tomorrow, would the world be a better or worse place for women? Worse. But that's how you read it. Here's the question Did Deuteronomy 21 make the world a better place or a worse place for women compared to the day before it was written? And the answer is quantum leap. Better. According to this historian, Karen Armstrong, she says this was the most giant leap forward for women's rights ever recorded in the history of the world up to that time. Here's why. In Persian law, Greek law, and Egyptian law, all women were property. And if they were foreigners, they were automatically slaves. When Moses was seeking God, how can this nation show the world what you look like? How will we treat women differently? And he says, you know what? This is how Israel's gonna be different. No, 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 no. If we see somebody, we gotta make them our wife with the same rights and privileges that the rest of our wives have. We gotta let them shave their head and clip their nails. By the way, that was a good thing because the context... Text was mourning. And in ancient Jewish mourning, all Jews would clip their hair and clip their nails. Essentially, Moses says, even if they're a foreigner, you got to let them be one of us. You got to let them mourn like one of us. You got to take them into your house. You cannot treat them like a slave, and you cannot ever buy and sell them because they're dishonored. You can't do that. You have to make them your wife with the same rights and privileges that the rest of your wives have. Moses is essentially standing on a soapbox saying, I've sought God on this. And in Israel, women are people, not property. Now, when you're the first person in the history of the world to make a national law calling women people, not property, is that a good move or a bad move? That's a really good flipping move. Is that inspired? You better believe it is. Is that the final word of God on women's rights? Not even close, but that was a gigantic leap in the right direction. And that is inspiring. She said, can I ask you one more question? I was like, no. No. <laughs> I went back to my hotel room. She was weeping. She she said, thank you for saving my faith. She said, because if there's an answer for that one, then all these other crazy ones, there's got to be an answer for them too, you know? I went back to my hotel room. I was grieved, you know? I was grieved because her pastor didn't know what to say. I wasn't mad at him. I was grieved. It's different. I wasn't mad at the philosophy professor. He's actually bringing up questions we should have better answers for. For, for Christians to not have an answer for that is abysmal I was grieved I, I sat in my hotel room and I said I was so serious with God I said God somebody's got to help somebody's got to do something about this somebody somebody with a big enough voice has got to answer those questions for these people like if that's one 20 year old girl how many 20 year old girls is this and if she's not my daughter but she's someone's daughter and to someone she matters and I just distinctly heard the spirit of God say why not you what's wrong with you What's wrong with you? Which leads me to this. It was in a Q&A. These are all real questions I got in real places. If somebody asked me, they said, Shane, how are you okay serving a God who blesses genocide? I said, "Uh, I'm lost. No, no, no. Like literally killing babies. Like you're anti-abortion, but you're for a God that blesses baby killing. And I don't understand it. I'm not being antagonistic. I'm just curious. Could you please help me? I said, you gotta, you gotta help me with this. She said, can I read it? It's right here in the Bible. I said, sure. It was Psalm 137. Let me show it to you. Next one. Oh, this is Psalm 137 verse eight. Oh, daughter Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones And dashes them against the rocks. She said, there it is in the Bible. God is promising to bless people who kill babies. How could you ever be for that? Now, static appropriation, genre confusion, lack of understanding of history. The problem with her question is what? Genre confusion. Psalms is not a historical narrative, nor a law, nor a static record of what God is. Psalms is a poem And it's written by an anonymous man. It's written by an anonymous priest who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's all we know. So all we know about who wrote this is that he was an anonymous priest taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon, which means that's not all we know because we know from history what Nebuchadnezzar did to captives. If you were under the age of eight, they killed you because you were useless If you were a baby in an act of terrorism, they would hold the baby's feet like this and gather a crowd and they would take the baby and bash its head against the closest stone. If you were under the age of eight, that was your fate. If you were over the age of 30, they killed you because you were useless. If you were between the ages of eight and 30 and you were a female, you became a sex slave for a platoon of Babylonian soldiers. If you were between the ages of eight and 30 and you were a male, you were marched to Babylon to be a slave. If you happened to be a priest, which this guy was, they would hold you down and they would take two bricks and they would crush your testicles between those two bricks to keep you from ever procreating, to create a line that would revolt. So if you're a priest in Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar took you captive, what have you lost in one day? You lost your wife. Your children, you would know somewhere your wife's being gang raped to death. You lost your job, your temple. The books of Kings says that Nebuchadnezzar went into the holy of holies itself and didn't die. Well, that would have been helpful to know yesterday. Because think about it. If you're a priest and you're in the testicle crushing line, right? And they're like number 37, number 37. You're like number 42. You're like, good Lord, right? And Nebuchadnezzar comes in. And he says, hey, have we got what's in the Holy of Holies yet? They're like, no, we left that for you. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going in there. If you're the priest in the testicle crushing line, what are you thinking when Nebuchadnezzar says he's going to the Holy of Holies? You're like, oh yeah, that's right. Hey, that's exactly what you need to do, bro. Hey, come here, come here, come here. Neb, 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 neb. Check this out. There's a big scary curtain. Don't worry about it. You're neb. Listen. Go on in there. The real expensive, priceless, one-of-a-kind stuff, it's all the way in there. You need to go all the way in, as far as you can because you're Neb. That's what you needed. And why would you do that? Why? Why would you do that? Here's why. Because Deuteronomy, Exodus, says, if anybody walks in there, they're gonna die. And then it says, and Nebuchadnezzar went in there and stole the furniture and did not die. Well, if you're that priest. Now your faith is rattled because either that's not true or God has left the building. Either way, we got a problem. Think about what you lost in one day. Your wife, your children. Your children's heads were bashed against stones. Your wife would have been gang raped to death. Your temple was destroyed. Your job, your position, your land. You've, you've, you've been marched in chains to be a slave and you lost your testicles in one day. When you lose your wife, your children, your job, your land, your temple, your faith gets rattled and you lose your testicles, that is a bad day. And what do you do to deal with a day so bad? What do you do? Evidently, you write a poem. And he sat down and he penned Psalm 137 to deal with the injustice, the pain. Psalm 137 is not a static record of God. It's an accurate record of one man's journal. Of how disappointed he was and where he ended up. And he says, God, they're making us sing songs. Like our tormentors are making us sing more. What do you, what, st- step in, help us here. I don't want to sing songs of Jerusalem to them. It's like, I, I, like well, what am I doing here? He says, I can't make sense of any of this, God. But I'm going to profoundly choose to trust you anyway. Here's all I ask. The ones who bashed our children's heads against stone. Would you pay them back and bash their children's heads against stone? Would you do that? Would you bless the person do that? Now, there's no record of God blessing someone doing that. And this is not a record of what God is. This is a record of what we would all want God to be in that situation. This is an an example of what you do in the face of horrendous injustice. You bring the offense and the offender to the throne of the one whose justice and righteousness and you leave it with him because only he can do anything about it. This is not about what God does. This is about what all of us would hope God would do if someone crushed our children's heads and that is moving and inspiring. So bless you, my brothers and sisters. May Jesus be bigger than you think. May the cross work better than you think. May the resurrection be central. May you be so aware that the resurrection power present in Jesus is still at work today. May you fall in love with your Bible again. May you engage it with all of your heart. Knowing that it's not just a story. It's your story and the Bible is awesome.